When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Working Overtime, the advice forward tomato in the BLT of working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. I'm really going to be thinking about that sandwich for the rest of this episode. Can you get uh, BLTs in Scotland? It seems like with the flabbiness of British bacon, you're really not going to want a Scottish BLT. Yeah, I think just stick with the bacon roll and you you can't go wrong. Yeah. Right. Or there would be blood sausage, uh, <laughs> lettuce and tomato, right? Where's your brogue, by the way? I mean, you've been in Edinburgh for long enough. I feel like you should be, you know... Here's the thing, Isaac. For many years, for decades, people have been confusing me with a Scot. I'm actually, just to be clear, for anyone who doesn't know, I am a Mancunian. I am not a Scot. And so I've seen 24 hour party people. I get it. <laughs> exactly. And so here's the thing. I think my, you know, my mid-Atlanticness came, sounded to a lot of people as Scottish. But I think also I think some Scots here are a bit confused. Somebody asked me the other day which part of the city I grew up in. I was like, it's called Manchester. But <laughs> I think I could get that Scottish brogue if only I drank Iron Brew, which is... The ultimate Scottish soda, it is for sale everywhere, every store, every restaurant, they sell Iron Brew. And they had a very memorable ad campaign that the slogan was, Iron Brew, made in Scotland, Fregardus. Bar's Iron Brew is made in Scotland from Gardus. Don't drink more than 80 gallons a day or you'll rust. So I think if I drank some iron brew, I would sound a bit more Scottish. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait for the you to eventually adopt a, a brogue. All right. Well, laddie, enough fun and games. What are we talking about today? June. Today, we're talking about failure, oh. and I want to explain why. Uh, I've been reading this wonderful memoir called Self-Portrait by the painter Celia Paul. Ruman actually uh, recommended it to me because he had reviewed it for book forum very highly, and I finally got around to it. And in it, she often talks about paintings that don't work out. She's abandoning paintings a lot. She's painting over them. She tries for a while to make one work. She scraps it. A thing she talks about is that a lot of the act of painting is actually destroying previous work that you've done. You're wiping it out with turpentine to redo it, or maybe you're even painting over an entire work or whatever. And that just got me thinking that, you know, this is a podcast about creative work and we don't spend enough time talking about failure, I think, in part because we're interviewing people who are successful and they often don't want to talk about it. But failure is not only an inevitable part of life and of the creative process, but I'm going to argue that it's an essential one. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I love to read creative people's letters, you know, their mm. correspondence with each other. You mean when they're published or are you breaking into their houses or how <laughs> yeah, are you both. encountering these letters? Yeah, okay. Just want to make sure. Officially when they're published. And I often think that's where you see writers or artists or musicians or whatever it is that they do talking about things that aren't working out, you know, commissions they didn't get or books that didn't sell or they got published, but they didn't sell very well. 
And they can have those conversations with their peers in kind of private. But at the same time, if someone is famous enough to have their letters collected and published, the chances are that whatever failures they experienced were a sort of temporary stage in a very successful career. So even those discussions of failure are actually dominated by those very annoying, ultra-successful people. And I think I'm at a place in my life, or certainly my work life, which I guess I could describe as like no longer climbing. Like I'm not out of the game, but I'm far enough from the thick of it that I can look back with some distance, some calm distance, I guess you could say, instead of being like in the feelings, which are, you know, might be of rejection or poor reception or whatever. And I really feel that it helps me to appreciate failure, you know, with distance, things not working out as I'd hoped or chances not appearing or things landing with a thud now seem like learning opportunities. I mean, I hear myself fighting not to take a tone with that, but really genuinely, I don't typically think of my life as an experiment, but I really think that it's productive, healing even, to pick over the circumstances of our failures to find some lessons in them. So, Isaac, you brought this up. How do we successfully talk about failure? Uh, I'm not sure, but why don't we take a stab at it by talking about some of our own big failures? What do you think? Oh, my goodness. Well, all right. Who's going to go first? Well, I guess because it was my idea, I'll go first, and then you can go and we can figure out what we learned. But maybe we should do that after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. 
Hey listeners, Isaac Butler here. We're going to be talking about failure in just one second. But before we do, I just wanted to remind you, if you are enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Uh, maybe rate or leave us a review, depending on which app you use, so that other people uh, can find us. And if you haven't yet, why don't you go ahead and sign up for Slate Plus? You can do that at slate.com slash working plus. You get all sorts of goodies, but most importantly, you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. All right, back to the episode. All right, welcome back, everyone. Isaac, I believe you were going to talk about a time that you really, really messed up. Yeah, thanks for reminding me, Jim. (laughs) I want to talk about one from my directing days. And this is the show that I thought was going to be my big break. And instead, it bigly blew up in my face. (laughs) Uh, I directed this play called First Year Born when I was in my mid-20s. And You know, it was one of those fluke things. It was a Danish play in translation, and the translator had sent it to this reading series of a company and the producers I had gone to college with, and so I wound up directing the reading, and it was a big hit, and then everyone really wanted to do it and just had this real energy behind it and and so on and so forth. And then actually, it took a really long time to get the rights, Uh. and in the period of time it took to get the rights... A lot of excitement started building up around this play within the within the company. And once we did get the rights, there was like a lot of money behind it. We had some really exciting designers. The nation of Denmark got what? involved because it was going to be the first contemporary Danish play done in English translation in the United States. Wow. And so they flew me to Copenhagen to research the play and meet the writer. And you know, when you're 25, that's some pretty heady stuff to be happening to you. Yeah, no kidding. So what happened? Well, there were things that happened that were outside of my control. This is stuff that was not my failure. I'll start with that. Although the okay. stuff that's my failure, you'll see, was was plenty bad. The <laughs> big one was, you know, it was a complicated set and the producers were relatively new at it and didn't get a crew together to build it. So suddenly uh, me and 20 volunteers were building the set when I should have been rehearsing the play. Wow. Uh, there were problems with the lighting rental. So tech took forever. You know, we had a tech rehearsal where we didn't get to the end of the play, that sort of thing. One costume designer quit to take a bigger gig and we had to find one only a couple weeks before the dress rehearsal was it it was things like that yeah but the bigger problems really only became visible once we had put the pieces together and and those were actually mostly my fault okay so what was that well none of the aspects of the show went together nothing in the production fit you know and those pieces certainly did not reflect the vision and ideas i had worked out for the show over the last two years one of the leads was totally miscast she was a very serious dramatic actor who had a lot of personal trauma and was Mm. very powerful on stage because she was able to really channel that pain into her work but this was like a melancholy light romantic (sighs) comedy you know so the character her character just seemed insane her character didn't seem whimsical or whatever she just seemed nuts and then the lead actor kind of followed her lead and wanted to take his character more seriously than uh, he should have and you know lots of pauses and sadness uh, like it was Chekhov or something and then he started kind of sabotaging rehearsals when I disagreed with him about oh that and, you know and the set was amazing but the costumes had no relationship to it at all it was a sort of very minimalist stark kind of set and the costumes were almost like Tim Burton or something the music and the sound design was too sad I could go on and on and on but it's just nothing worked together so why was this your fault 
Well, because I hadn't really been leading the process, which is the director's job. I had tried to yes and too many ideas instead of giving honest feedback and imposing my own will, to be frank, because I was too worried about being liked. And then once I I did try to do that, it was just too late. The leads refused to alter their performances, even after we had a preview where half of the audience stormed out midway through the show. I couldn't bring myself to fire them because they were friends of mine, although, of course, I never spoke to them again. You know, it was it was just a total and complete disaster. So this is what I learned from it. I really just cared too much about being liked and about mm. being everyone's friend. Mm. It's important to value people. It's important to value your relationships with them. I'm not saying that. But I so overvalued that personal angle that I just became totally conflict averse. I did not serve the play that we were making. I was instead serving my own idea of what, you know, being a good person and a good friend looked like. Yeah. And the end result is it wrecked the play and it wrecked my friendship. And so the thing that I had to learn how to do is how to give feedback, how to talk to people, how to collaborate, how to disagree in a way that's like both honest and clear and considerate of them as a human being who has their own independent creative ideas and et cetera and so forth. And, mm. you know, I think the reason why I'm a good collaborator today, and I want to say I am really good at making things with people. That's <laughs> something I'm very good at is actually because of this terrible experience. That doesn't make it any less painful. Yeah. I almost quit directing. Anytime I had too much to drink over the next two years, I would start moaning about it. Gosh. You know, it was, it was like a bad breakup almost. Yeah. But once yeah. I got to the other side of it, I think I learned some stuff that I'm not sure I could have learned had I not had that experience. Okay. Now, I just want to take a moment to, I guess, underline something you just said. Like, failure is not fun. It is horrid. It sucks. It makes you sad. It makes you mad. It makes you jealous or it lets you get in touch with your jealous urges if you have them. And it really does not bring out the best in people. And I'm saying that because... Trying to take lessons from failure can sound like, oh man, it's great, it's the best, so helpful. And no, it's awful. But once you have enough distance, once you've you know spent those years of moaning every time you have a drink, then you can think about what happened, really examine what happened, what you could have done differently, what you should do differently if a similar situation arises again then it gives you access to strategies that you couldn't have come up without it. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just want to, like, pause just to say <laughs> they're great, they're awful, they're great, like, it's, it's all of it. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Well, June, I feel like we have excavated my past humiliations and trauma <laughs> enough. It'll be your turn on the hot seat soon, but Oof. first, we're going to take a little break. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, listeners, Isaac, again, don't want to trouble you for too long. I just wanted to say we would really love to hear from you, whether you want to talk about your failures or your successes or ask us a question, suggest a guest, anything. Please drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a call at 304-933-WORK. All right, back to the show. And we're back. June. I think it's now your chance to tell us of a time you failed creatively and what you learned from it. Well, first, I have to admit, I don't think I have ever crashed and burned on the scale of the story you just told. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. But of course, there's nothing really to boast about because you had put yourself in a position to fail big, which actually takes some doing. You you have to be given that power uh, and given that chance, you know, which... Not everybody gets, but I have two stories. The first is from the first time that I tried to sell a book. You know, I was contacted by an agent. We met, we had a couple of lunches, got on great. They really are a great person and a good agent, but they weren't the right agent for me. And I didn't realize that until I connected with my current agent, but we'll get to that. So the first time around, I had a topic that I was really interested in, I really cared about. And that feels important, but there was a pretty narrow frame that I was willing to put on it. And there were a lot of things I did not want to do, but I didn't really have that conversation with the agent. And I did an okay book proposal, but they didn't really push me. We just didn't have tough conversations about the project. And, you know, not surprisingly, the book didn't sell. And you know, I'm not going to lie, I was bummed, but I think I always knew that it wasn't quite right. You know, and I don't know exactly what the issue was. Maybe I wasn't ready to write a book or perhaps that was the wrong book. I want to say, though, I yeah. do think that there's there's a thing, you know, a really important lesson there for writers when they're starting out, because I went through this, too, with two agents before mm. I landed with my oh, current wow. one, is that, you know, when someone is interested in your work, And you're like, you know, you really want to write a book. You're at the point where it's like, or you've written the book and you really want to sell it. And someone is like, hey, this is really good. I'm interested in you. I want to help you build your career or whatever. It's really hard in that moment to stop and say, wait a minute. Is this actually the right person for me? Do we want the same things from this situation? Do they see the book the same way that I do? Because it's just such an amazing feeling to have anyone interested in our work at all, you know? And, And it sounds like you went through the thing a lot of writers do, which is that you didn't pause in that moment to kind of have those hard conversations and never had them. And as a result, the project sort of never happened. Yeah. Absolutely. Not to say that it would have happened anyway, but I'm just saying that, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what happened with your current agent? So when I connected with my current agent, which feels like saying my current wife, I'm not planning to make a change. It was just a very different kind of relationship. And to be clear, she too is an awesome person, but she was more demanding. You know, she gave me fantastic edits, pushback where I needed it. 
and she made me do a lot of work. I mean, she didn't make me, but I understood why I needed to. And the proposal that came out of that experience was so much better than the first one, and it sold at auction, which was great. <laughs> so what do you what do you feel like you learned from this? So the fact that the first proposal didn't sell, didn't feel good, but that experience meant that I understood why the second agent was asking certain questions or suggesting certain things. It made me a much better client and a much better potential book writer. And if the first book had sold, I wouldn't have had the first clue how to start writing it. I just wasn't prepared. But doing that far more intensive second proposal, researching and writing a sample chapter, which I absolutely did not want to do when I had a pretty demanding job at the time, doing multiple versions of the proposal, going back and forth with my agent and really developing a relationship of trust with her, I mean, that was incredibly useful. And I don't think that I would have put in that time without the failure, which, of course, I only realized in retrospect, but, you know, it was great. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. You know, I also think that one of the hard things to learn in a creative life is how to have a good, healthy relationship to failure itself, regardless of what the specific failure is. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you have that? Do you have a healthy relationship to failure? And if so, teach me, teach me, Obi-Wan. <laughs> how did you get there? What is that relationship? Oh, I still want to avoid it at all costs. Is that healthy? Probably, I think. But I think time is the key. So I mentioned earlier, I actually have two stories of failure that I want to share. The second is actually less about failure and more disappointment. So at some point in my career, I got laid off. And I knew that I should have gotten another similar job. You know, I should have gotten back on the horse, I guess. And I could have, you know, I had the kind of connections to learn about similar positions. I had the skills to do the job, but I wanted to try something else, specifically writing rather than editing. And I had a chance to do that at Slate as a freelancer and I grabbed it. And even though it meant losing career momentum, taking a step down in pay, being a freelancer with all the things that means you don't have, but I wanted to do it. And again, that felt healthy. Um, and in a way that was embracing failure or not being, you know, not being afraid to appear to some people who I don't know, but as a failure and choosing a different path, because that was what I really wanted to do. And it took some pausing and deciding what was important to me. And, you know, I have to credit my self-knowledge and also be grateful that I had some savings and it minimized or mitigated the risk. And, you know, again, with the benefit of time and hindsight, it turned out to be a great decision, both for my career and I think even more importantly, perhaps for my personal happiness. So what about you? Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm still freaked out by failing like you, you know. I don't know that you ever get to the point where it feels any better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, maybe absolutely. athletes do, right? Because they lose all the time. Yeah. Even the ones who are very successful, they're losing yeah. sometimes. And so I don't know. But <laughs> I will say that I think your relationship to failure can change. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Even yeah. it's not going to make it feel any better, but but like your relationship to it can change. So for me, it's like I've failed enough times at this point that if I'm going through something that's like, ah, 
I've been to this rodeo before, you know, (laughs) and, and you can just sort of say, this is a moment in time. You've had these moments before. You don't know how this is going to shake out long-term in your life. That's not actually a a thing that you can decide now. You're only going to know what this moment really meant in hindsight. And so just get through it, find a way forward, and then you can figure out, you know, was this the end of your career or was this just like uh, something didn't, you didn't place an essay? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That time is important and keeping that in mind when you're in the middle of it because you can't actually generate that distance then. Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, all you can do is experience it and be open with your loved ones about what you're going through mm. and ask for what you need and, and yeah. take care of yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so much wisdom there. And, you know, again, let's face it, it's always better to focus on what we can learn from a situation, especially when the alternative is panicking, generally freaking out, which... You know, it's very, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, it's so easy. Don't do that. No, it's very hard, but yeah, that is not productive. So whatever you can do to just avoid fixating on the potential for failure, <laughs> you will be happier. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Working Overtime. If you like what we do here on Working, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And also, don't forget about Slate Plus. That would be like forgetting about Dre. (laughs) Slate Plus members get full access behind the paywall. They get bonus episodes. They They get bonus segments of their favorite shows like this one. And you get to sleep peacefully at night. (laughs) knowing that you have supported what we do right here on Working. Subscribe today at slate.com slash working plus. An extra special thanks to the man who always succeeds in his endeavors, our Working Overtime producer, Kevin Bendis. Our series producer is the great Cameron Drews. We'll have another Working Overtime episode in two weeks. And of course, we'll be back this Sunday and every Sunday with a new episode of Working original flavor. So until then, get back to work. We believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.